Okay. Yeah, Marilyn asked for just two minutes. You want to talk into the microphone? Or? Sure. There you go. I'm here to talk to you about stamps for Lutheran Women's Missionary League. It's called Stamps for Missions. Um, people take used stamps, cut them off the envelopes with a quarter of an inch border, and they save them, and they're going to either give them to me or put them in the LWML box, and then we donate them. And there's someone at Zion Lutheran Church in Naperville who goes through them. He's a stamp collector with his friends. They sell them. Over $1,000 is raised every year just from used stamps, and it goes to missions. So that's a good thing. And I brought it to you because I knew you ladies would be the people who would do it. And just for fun, I pulled a couple out, and I found one from... Uh, Going to the moon, Viking mission to the moon, 15 cents, and another one from the bicentennial of 1976. It was a 13 cent stamp. <laughs> but postcards also, they'd like to have the entire postcard. And don't worry, give me any kind of stamp, and um, Emily and I will go through them and make sure, because some of the common flags don't count, but you don't know, some of the flags are good. So just Put them in, keep it simple, quarter of an inch border. If they put it real close to the edge and you can cut part of the back of the envelope off so you keep that quarter of an inch border because it's, you know, if the stamp is damaged, it has way less value. But if it was, you know, these older ones, I wouldn't be surprised if they have value even if they are messed up a little bit. So if you would save them for me. Yes, Carol? Where would you like us to put them? In the LWML box in the mailroom or give them to me or Emily. Or Jan, surely. Any of us in LWML. If anybody ever runs across Thank you. a Thank you. What do you call a stamp collector? This is not a joke. A philatelist. A yeah, a philatelist. I know the word, but I forgot. What do you call a coin collector? A coin collector. Some, some, yeah, okay, all right. Important things you need to know. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's say a prayer. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Our souls long, yes, they faint for your courts, where our heart and flesh may sing for joy to you, the living God. O Lord of hosts, hear our prayer. Be our shield and our refuge. Look on us with favor. O Lord of hosts, bless us, for we trust in you. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. What kind of questions do you have? We're plugging along here. I hear you made it through chapter 15. Any questions? Yeah, so that's good. Look at the artwork I gave you there. We haven't talked about this artwork in a little while. This is, this is one of my favorite things, though. Um, the side that's got the John's... Oh, it doesn't. I wrote it on my sheet, not on yours. The one that has Samuel pointing at Saul by John Singleton Copley. That's um, after Samuel said, I'm not going to go with you anymore, Saul. What do you see going on there? Do you see anything? His robe, say that again. His robe isn't ripped. Maybe it's behind him. Samuel's robe? Look, Saul's got his hand on the robe. Yeah. He's grabbing the corner of Saul's or Samuel's robe. Now, I don't, maybe Pastor Nelson mentioned this. That there's some significance to that, too. It's not just like he's just randomly grappling after 
Samuel, but there in the corner of a faithful Jew's robe would have been some tassels that represented the Torah. So this is, I mean, Saul wasn't like trying to do that, but this is symbolic, right? He's ripping apart God's kingdom by removing his law, removing his word from it. Yeah, what else do you notice about this painting? His demeanor, yeah. You're talking about Saul's demeanor? Yep. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Compare his demeanor to the horse's demeanor. Yeah. That horse seems to have a good sense of what's going on here, right? Look at it. It's terrified. But but Saul, you're right. Saul's kind of like indifferent almost. He's um, and there you get. I love the sense that Samuel has turned back, and it's like he's like a wizard, right? He's this blasting them um, with with what he's saying, and that's I mean that's the the potency of the words that he's giving. They are serious, deadly words. What else do you notice? This guy is black. Yeah. And the city, you can kind of see that Yeah, yeah, the, the, the light and the dark, that's really... So th- with his pointed finger is coming this darkness, right? The light is, um, is going away. What else do you notice? Yeah, surely. I almost, they, they're not on solid ground. As he pulls the robe, it's almost like he's ready to go all the way back. Like... Yeah. Yeah, he's toppling over for sure. Could that be Jonathan That could be. Yeah, now that would be interesting. There's a lot going on there, right? So what is that fellow? The fellow to Saul's right, your left, Saul's right. What's he doing? He's shocked. Yeah? Yeah. And where is his attention directed? He's looking at Samuel. Saul's not even looking at Samuel. Nobody else is, really, either, except for the horse and that boy next to Saul, right? Yeah. For a minute, I thought maybe that's David, but he's got the soldiers. That's right. He's not, yeah, he's not in the picture quite yet. Yep. Yeah, so Jonathan, I mean, and that, that is, uh, um, that's a good observation. I like that. Yeah. Anything else you notice? What's that thing up in the sky? The banner up there? It's a banner. Yeah. What, what's it attached to? A pole. You got it attached to a pole in somebody's hand if you follow by the horse's face there. It's like it's just, it's wrapped, in, you know, it's not attached. It looks more like a deep cloud. Hmm. Or... It's got tassels hanging on. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it looks um, like it's running. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly, to me, it has, it, there's the sense that there's, so it's up in the atmosphere where there's, there's this storm brewing, right? It's just like in turmoil. Yeah, Holly. Um, Samuel wears the color of the feathers. Yeah. Saul wears the color of the Yeah, that's right. That's good. Anything else? What about what about Samuel? He's got. Um, just think about how the light is playing on Samuel, right? So, and and how his body is oriented. He's. I mean, his his feet are going one direction, and his head is turned around entirely. Which is it's such a, a striking picture because as soon as he's done speaking, what's going to happen? He's gonna he's gonna turn around, and his back is gonna be to Saul. Which is so. Samuel is. God's representative, and there is no worse fate in the scriptures than to have God turn his face away from you, right? And that is, like, that is the, his, his, his muscles are, are wound for, 
turning away. Holly. Um, so, you know, I think like the light is God's presence. I don't know if that changes Saul's demeanor. Like he can't look at God's presence anymore because he's broken commandments. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. He can't, he can't bear whatever it is that's coming to him, right? Whatever it is that is in front of him, yeah. Good. Anything else stand out to you? I think this is a great painting. This is really a really nice one. It captures so well that, that dramatic moment in the story. And that moment was, there was plenty of build-up to it. So, this, so here's my question for you. I, I didn't get, I usually I get a chance to sort of listen into what uh, Pastor Nelson said in Bible study. I didn't get a chance last time, for last week, so tell me. What, uh, what did you cover? What did you talk about in 1 Samuel 12 through 15? What kinds of things uh, did you bring out of the story? 1 Samuel 12 through 15 last week. So we had, the previous week we had Saul acting like a king, exacting vengeance on Nahash, the Ammonite, the serpent, right? Um, and then Saul, Samuel, everything looks great. Samuel says, let's renew the kingdom. And then chapter 12, Samuel gets up and gives this farewell address. What's that, what's that farewell address like? He rehearses the story of the Israelites and coming out of Egypt. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, this is a wonderful speech. It's a, I mean, it's uh, terrifying because he says you've, you've uh, done all of these terrible things, right? You've, you asked for a king when you had God as your king. And the people say, yes, we've sinned, just please don't abandon us. And he says, he gives this promise at the end, right? You, do not be afraid, verse 20, you've done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. That, that empty, I, I have to check, but that's the same kind of word that you get in Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. There it is, right? Why? Not, for, not because you're so wonderful, but because he's put his name on you. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, so now Samuel says, this is my job. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. For consider what great things he has done for you. But, <laughs> last verse, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, you and your king. Okay? It's pretty clear, right? There are two ways. The way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. Um, the fear of the Lord and contempt for God. Okay. So that's Samuel's farewell address, and things rapidly then disintegrate. What happens next? Or what? Did, what tell me. Just I'm sorry. I'm le- asking too many leading questions. What else did you talk about last week? Weak excuses. Good. Yeah. That's right. Yep. That's right. I was. I had really pious motives. Look, I was sacrificing to God. You know, why are you so mad at me? I was doing what I was. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. Tell me, so did so. There's three things. 
that Saul does, three really terminal things that he does. Did you talk about it this way last week at all? Okay, if, we, if, if I'm repeating things, let me know and we'll just skip it. Can you tell me what the three things were that Saul did? He didn't wait. Good, good. What was he supposed to wait for? That's right. Wait for me seven days. The seventh day came. He did his own thing. Why did he do his own thing? The people, yeah. That's right. Um, now, that's really interesting. Like, blame it on the people. So I want you to see just a little bit of a pattern here as we go through these things. Um, this is, in some ways, a recapitulation of everything that's come before in the history of Israel. So in the beginning of the story, Genesis 1 through 6, there are three big sins that happen. What's the first one? Okay. They eat of the fruit of the tree, which is disobedience to their heavenly father, right? Remember, Saul is like in a paternal relationship with Samuel. Samuel's like his father, right? Um, he disobeys his father. And what does Adam do when he disobeys his father? Blames Eve, right? King, Saul, the king, is supposed to be wedded to, the, to God's people, right? He goes and he blames his bride, right? They made me do it. This woman that you gave to me made me do it, okay? Um, so watch for this pattern then. Can you think, what's the next big sin that happens in Genesis? Nancy? I don't remember if it's next, but he doesn't kill all the Amalekites. <laughs> that's right, that's number three. Yeah, it doesn't kill all the Amalekites, yep. That's right. Um, no, harem. So there's this, this technical word, harem, which has to do with wiping everything out, right? That means don't leave anything. Wipe it all out. And he doesn't do it to the Amalekites. Um, and again, it was, yes, Yeah, that's right. We, look, we, we wiped out all of the, the terrible animals, the ones that were injured, the ones that, and we saved the best ones. Why? To sacrifice them. Right. Ah, so good. Um, what, a, what a great guy. No. And then and Samuel says, remember what Samuel says in response to that? This brilliant, I mean, this is, if we could just work our lives this way, we'd be in such good shape. It's 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's, it's worse than just disobeying, it's like having another God, right? And then you, later we're going to see this come to fruition when Saul goes and asks the witch of Endor instead of asking God, right? For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Okay. Okay, so hang on to that thought for a second. What was number two? Do you remember what number two was? Probably the vow. The vow. Yeah, it began with this vow. Now the vow... He, it was, that was a bad idea. Remember what the vow was? What was the vow? They didn't have Twitter results. Jonathan, Jonathan didn't. Yeah, he, got, he missed the, mem- the memo, right? What, that's right. And why, why weren't they supposed to eat? Remember? So, you get, so what's so amazing to me is that, that Saul had this great humble character originally, and then like chapter 12 comes along, and all of a sudden he's like a different person. So what, why does he make this vow? Why doesn't he want anybody to eat? He wants to avenge his enemies, right? 
by golly, this is my victory. We're not going to quit till it's been done entirely, okay? Jonathan misses the memo and does what? What does Jonathan do? Eats the honey. Yeah, that's right. I know. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's such a fascinating story. Those details are so interesting, right? Um, but he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know. But, but Jonathan is um, this amazing, silent hero, right? So he's supposed to be, Saul is supposed to be acting like a king. In the, all of these stories, starting in chapter 12, it's Jonathan who's acting like a king, right? Um, Saul is sort of cowering, and Jonathan goes and with his armor bearer, routes this band of Philistines, and he it does the sensible thing, eats so that he can fight well and not be ragged, yeah? Um, okay, so what happens next? He's, Saul has sworn this vow, and then they have, they have this problem. But pay attention to this. We're in chapter 14 here. So they're getting ready to go and attack after Jonathan has defeated the Philistines. They're going to go and finish the, finish the work. And Saul's got, he's got the, um, the priest who's got the ephod, and he's talking to God. The priest is talking to God. He's got his hand on, it says the ark. It's a little bit ambiguous whether it's the ark itself or the ephod, which is like a portable ark. Does this sound familiar? Or are you, are you tracking with me? Okay. And uh, what does Saul do? The priest is talking to God. What does Saul say to him? Verse 19. 14 verse 19. Stop talking to God. Right? Because he thinks the victory, the battle is his right now. Okay? So stop talking to God. He cuts off God's word. Always a bad idea. And then, and then scoot down to verse 37. This is what prompts them to realize that somebody's broken Saul's vow. Verse 37 and Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day, right? So Saul stopped listening to God, and then God stopped speaking to Saul. It's a terrible, it's a terrible judgment. But he says somebody must have, he, he realized somebody must have done something wrong. Um, and, and then it's this uh, uh, foreshadowing, come here. Verse 38, everybody gathered together, but even if it is Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Whoever has done this shall surely die. Okay, so they split apart, Saul and Jonathan on one side, the rest of the people of Israel on the other side. They inquire using the umim and the fumim, and they find out it's on Saul and Jonathan's side, and then they cast lots again between Saul and Jonathan. They find out it was Jonathan. And Jonathan, how does Jonathan react to all this once, they, once he's been found guilty? Yeah, you got, you're right. Um, which is amazing because, of course, he's, he's innocent. He, this was a bad command, a bad vow. So Jonathan did it unwittingly. Trying, he was trying to do the best that he could with what was given to him, and uh, here he is being punished for it, right? What does Saul say? Kill him. That's right. Okay, which is, I think, so the rash vow is the, the, the setup for this sin, which is kill my son, Right? He's just, he's ready to um, put it on Jonathan. Let Jonathan bear the weight of his own sins. Which is, so think back to Genesis now. Is it it, that Saul wants to save himself? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if you have here Jonathan, who's clearly the reason that we're losing him, or that God's not speaking to us, and whether we should go to battle or not, if you can kill him, it means that we've, figured out what the cause was, and it's not me, right? It's not Saul's fault.
within your family, right? So you're not, it's not just obeying your authority, but it's killing your relatives, your family. Um, so we've got Cain and Abel in the background. Good. Um, yeah, and then he comes to, in, in, chap- in the third big sin, where he fails to eradicate the Amalekites. Again, he has this, um, this lame excuse that he was going to sacrifice the animals, the best animals, was going to sacrifice them to God, and he also had done one other thing, too. He, he had spared something else, too. The king, Agag, right? How does Samuel react to that? Remember? Yeah. Um, Samuel, is, Samuel is zealous for God, right? He is zealous for God. Um, okay, now, this is, this is where the uh, parallel gets a little bit looser, but turn in Genesis, back way up to, back to Genesis Chapter 6. So we have, in the first place, what you owe to your father. And then in the second place, you have a sin against what you owe to your family. Um, And then we have this, you know, this witness among the nations that Saul um, bollocks up. And this is, so I'm getting this from a commentator. I think it's a little bit weaker on this point, but it's, uh, it's still helpful to see the, the parallels here. Look at Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, so there's this intermarriage, and it's a little bit perplexing what exactly that means, but they're not, they're not um, maintaining their, their appropriate distance from the pagan nations, the nations who are not worshiping God. And that's always a dangerous thing. I mean, the warnings against that kind of intermarriage are throughout. That, that's the reason Solomon falls to pieces, right? Because he's got all of these wives from Egypt and from other nations. Um, and it's such a sensible thing, too. Like, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't take, it's just a practical thing, right? So you, if you devote yourself to somebody who is not worshiping the true God, it's going to be hard for your heart to remain faithful. Okay? Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then this really strange thing, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. We don't know who those are. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. They, these, they, that's right. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now here's the key. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
So this parallel is strongest in this notion that God regrets it. He's got sorrow over what over his creation. Jan. If the Israelites had done what God commanded when they crossed the Jordan River, and that's get rid of everybody that was in the land, they wouldn't have been in this mess at this point. That's right. They wouldn't have been fighting the Amalekites. They wouldn't have got tired and quit quit fighting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, and this is, again, why, why, why does God say obey? It's not just because, like, he delights in having obedient children, but because what he's saying to do is what's good for you, right? When he tells the Israelites, wipe them out, he's saying because it's not going to go well for you if you don't, right? You're going to suffer on account of it. Um, and, then, and then on top of that, like, the things that they suffer just because they've left these people around, on top of that, their sin heaps God's own his, his directed judgment at them, right? So he, he also punishes them for it, re- removing his word um, and sending enemies against them. Um, but this notion that God has regretted what he's done, this, this is all over chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, right? So verse 10, when Samuel's come and heard the bleeding, right? Remember, he's heard the animals, all the ruckus that they're, that they're making, and he says, what is this noise that I hear? And then verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, I think it's helpful if we talk a little bit about what that means. Does it strike you as odd or funny at all that God would say that he regrets making Saul king? What does that mean? Sounds like he made a mistake. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe you don't hear it that way. I do. When I hear regret, what are, you, what are the kinds of things you regret? Well, I regret eating too many cupcakes yesterday, right? <laughs> I made a mistake. I wish I hadn't done it, okay? I regret I made a mistake. And I, so that's in our background, in our ears, is that it's a mistake. Now, that can't possibly be the case, right? Because God doesn't make mistakes. Carol. Well, even when you're regretting that you ate those cupcakes. Yeah. Saying it's a mistake or not. It was. No, it's, it's the result. Mm. Yeah. Or is that God regrets that because He knows the result? Yeah. That's right. So, so that now I've got to do something else. So instead of talking about it as a mistake, you might say there's something, a deed, that had a result. And this result makes me sorry, makes me sad, right? Jan. Well, and this isn't the first time that God said something like this, because he said the same thing to Moses. He was ready to, you know, put thunder and lightning and blow them all up, because he said, no, you can't do that. What are the people in Egypt going to say if you blow up your own people? Right. And, and it says God relented, right? So God, this is very strange. God changed his mind, right? So the, actually, this word regret in Hebrew, is really ambiguous. It's also repent or turn back. It's also got some sense of, like, um, consolation to it, which is really... Um, it's a, so this is one of the problems with Hebrew. There are very few words in Hebrew. So in English, we have lots of words that mean one thing. In Hebrew, you have few words that mean lots of things, okay? Um, and that, ascribing to God repentance, that he says, I'm going to do this, and then he says, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's a very strange thing. Holly. Um, I, 
I know what you mean. So yeah, we sh- it's good to explore these possibilities. So does he regret giving us free will? So that goes all the way back to the beginning, right? So it's not just this choice. Let's just take the example of making Saul king. It's not just that he regrets making Saul king, but does he even regret making humanity at all and giving them a will so that they could corrupt themselves? Does, is that what he regrets? Now, you said something more. What was the next thing you said? Um, didn't anticipate, right? Um, he didn't see this coming. Now, do you think... So, this is good, because... I can't believe that. But, oh, yeah. yeah right. That can't be. Can't be, right? No. Right. But if he knew, and still let it happen. Good. How can, that, how can that possibly... This is the classic question, right? Sometimes you have to learn your lesson. Okay. <laughs> now, that, that, is, that is something we know, just because we know humanity, right? That some things you only learn the hard way, right? Um... And certainly if we know that, God knows that better than we do, right? And it, that doesn't mean that when you see somebody, when you see your kids learning something the hard way, you're not sorry about it, right? That you, you wish it didn't have to be that way. Um, that gets us, I think that gets us a bit closer to what's going on when God regrets it. Aaron. But I guess that's hard, though, because then what if your mistake hurts other people, too? Yeah. Right, innocent people. This is the this is the key, right? So somehow, now this is why it's it's great that we do have a God who doesn't fail to anticipate things. Because when I sin and do something that makes God sad, it's not just hurting me; it's hurting all kinds of other people. And somehow, He's using that not just for my good, but also for the good of everybody around me that's getting hurt. Somehow, according to His divine will, that's happening because. He's a master of unintended consequences, right? He knows how the he knows how all of the the uh, dominoes are going to fall. Um, when we try to think that we when we imagine that we can ma- be masters of that, then we get ourselves into a world of trouble, right? Um, this this is I mean such a critical thing when it comes to like what is our what's our our toolbox for dealing with sin? It's very simple. It's God's word because God's the one who's going to figure things out. God's going to understand and deal with the consequences of a thing. Um, so, so we have to say, yeah, God knows. And say that again. Yeah, he grieves. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, God knows, but it still grieves him. And this is really important. Um, I can't talk while I write. Hang on. Grieves him. Um, the reason why we, we, we can't say that, it's a, that God made a mistake and that God didn't anticipate it is because we say of God things that have to be true, like that God does everything right, that he's righteous, and that God knows everything, and that he's all, you know, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, right? All of these things you have to say about God. Now, the problem is that when we say those things, it's like we're sitting in our armchairs as philosophers and we're just sort of like casting ourselves up into heaven, imagining how God would be apart from humanity, apart from creation, apart from the world. But that's not, how God, that's not how we access God. It's not apart from creation. It's not apart from the world. It's not outside of time, not outside of history. We don't have access to that. Yeah, God is all of those things outside of this world. But what has he done? 
He's created this world, created time, created history, a history in which, like, he has to wait for things. That's a very strange thing, that God would have to wait for things. Um, and, and consequently, there's all of these strange things that God experiences, like sorrow, also joy, delight, happiness, um, and, you know, impatience, right? He's ready to let the people of Israel have it. <laughs> um, but you get a sense of why, why, how strange this is. There's this... Um, so three times in 1 Samuel 15, we get this talk about regret. So the first time is verse 10, I regret that I made Saul king. And then again in verse 29, starting in verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, David. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So, there, so he regrets it, but he's not a man that he should have regret, Right? And then again in verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. And biblical scholars and theologians have for a long time tried to say, you know, how can it seems to be contradictory things, but I think it makes perfect sense. Here we are saying that God regrets something, and God's saying, I shouldn't regret things because I'm God. Why do I regret them? Why am I subject to the contingencies of history? Why do I have to wait? Why do I have to be patient? Why do I have to suffer? Why? Why does God do all of that? he loves you, right? The, the answer is there. It's right there. Um, it's not like we should look for some sort of a philosophical explanation that resolves these things and lets God be God the way that we might imagine him to be. We should rejoice that we have a God who is willing to subject himself to such strange things, things that are not proper to God but belong to humanity because he loves us. Um, which is the reason why he creates the world in the first place. It's the reason why he gives man free will in the first place. Why, he's, why knowing that, that humanity is going to um, take what's good and turn it into evil, he still does it anyways because he loves his creation. And he wants a creation that uh, he can love. Um, that takes, I think that that takes the wind out entirely, the sails of like all of these complaints about, like, is God, how can God be... Uh, merciful and just at the same time or how can God seem to change his mind or how can we have an all-knowing, all-powerful God who still allows bad things to happen? How? Because he loves you. That's how. Right? That's the answer right there. And if we take st- seriously our inability to understand what love is or you know, just the, f- the fact that we can't see beyond the horizon or we can't, you know, we can't get past what's right in front of us, it makes it's, it's, you chalk it up to um, a mystery, gladly chalk it up to a mystery, because you couldn't anticipate all the consequences. You couldn't, you couldn't solve this, right? So don't try. God's going to do it, and he's doing it for you. Um, this is one of the reasons why I love 1 Samuel, is because uh, we see God in the mix here, right? And it, it, it sheds light on what's going to happen at the cross. So if it doesn't startle us um, that Jesus is God dying on the cross. This, of course, is not going to startle us that he regrets things in 1 Samuel, but this is all of one piece. How can that be, that God would take on human flesh and submit himself to dying, something that's not proper to God? It's because he loves you. Got any questions? Kathy. Yeah. Last week, and that Saul was about incantation versus relationship with 
God and Samuel, and he just broke all that. And I think that's because, like you were just saying, we can't see, so then we have to start presuming. No, we don't have to. But we, we, we reject mystery. Yeah. We, we reject mystery today so much that people create mystery like aliens. <laughs> that's right. Or aliens. Oh yeah, if, as if there's not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's never so. This that's such a great point because um, it's like we were talking about suffering yesterday at uh, at Emmett's with the the men's the men's group. Um, it's like it's like the mystery is like suffering. You're willing to accept the ones that are com- that what's comfortable for you, right? The mysteries that are comfortable for you, the suffering that's comfortable for you, the, the suffering you would choose for yourself. Yeah, bring it on. I'm happy to take that. That's not real suffering. Those aren't real mysteries, right? It's what it's what it's when your faith comes up against a wall where you say, "Look, it really feels like I can't believe this." <laughs> or, I mean, I, I don't know if you have this experience. I have these moments regularly where I say, "Well, this is a moment where um, I find out whether or not I really believe all of this." Right? That happens, and that's the, that's when you pray that God fills you with faith. Um, and same thing when you suffer. Right? Those are the moments when you find out whether or not. You really believe, and you realize how little control you have over that and how much you rely on God to give you faith and to, and to lead you to repentance. There's, there's, um, this notion of presumption is so important. There's this great psalm here. Let me find it real quick. Um, shoot, I lost it. It's about what it's like to be a king, Psalm 82. So, this, so it's difficult for ordinary people to live their lives in a way that's faithful because we all have stuff that's within our, within our realm of jurisdiction. We all have stuff that we're responsible for, right? You've got your, your own person, the people in your, your neighborhood, right? Your scope of influence. You've got your family. You've got your community. You've got your church. You've got people that you are responsible. You have relationships of authority and, and uh uh, subordination, right? You have those relationships. A king has got that through the roof, right? Saul has a really difficult job. And, and God is also a very important job. So t- God talks about it in this way. Um, he says that his, the people that he's put on thrones are like gods because they are his delegates in the world. What is their responsibility, their chief responsibility of a king? It's to make sure that God is worshipped, right? That true religion, that true worship of God is given free reign in the land. It's also to, so that has to do with the first table of the Ten Commandments, one, two, and three. A king's responsibility is also to ensure that, you know, children obey their parents, that nobody's murdering anybody, that no adultery is committed, you know, that people aren't stealing or murdering and so forth. That's, so that's the responsibility. But with that comes, imagine, all of this potential for, for presumption. And here's how it, here's how it um, appears in this psalm, Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then he says this. Of, so he's talking about earthly rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's your, that's your job. That's your job, kings. Do that. But then this problem. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. 
which is kind of like what, I mean, that sounds like Saul, right? He's just sort of bumbling about, <laughs> doing whatever it seems right to him in, that, in any given moment, getting it right some of the time, but then when he, when he messes it up, it's, it's terrible. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. What's the consequence of that? It messes the whole world up. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. That's the cure for presumption, right? Yeah, you are like gods in the world. You, Saul, are to be my delegate. You are to be my representative to these people, but you are a man. And like all men, you shall die. And then the psalmist says, basically has enough. <laughs> has enough with these men. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Right? It's provisional. It's all provisional. When God puts a king on a throne, it's, it's because he's being patient. It's because he's waiting. Right? Waiting for the day of his salvation. Um, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Right? In the fullness of time. Uh, why, how, all of that, how all of this history the history leading up to Jesus is a setup for Jesus. We get glimpses of that, right, in the story. And that's what we're looking at in First, Samuel, First and Second Samuel. But how that all works together and how, why it's necessary, we don't really have an idea except that, again, it's somehow to bring us all into God's kingdom. That's what he's, that's what he's after. Okay, what questions do you have right now? Let's do this. Let's look at First Samuel 16. This works out well, because I, I, David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, warrants a bit more discussion, and so I didn't want to start it and not be able to finish it, so Pastor Nelson will do that next week. But let's look at 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So he's got this political maneuvering here, right? Samuel has just said all kinds of terrible things to Saul, and now he needs to watch his back. Okay? Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Which is how people act when a pastor comes to them too, right? Well, do you, are you, why, why do you, I had somebody ask me just then, why are you here? Like, That's a good question. And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But, Sam, but the Lord said to Samuel, this is, These are some great lines here now. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now that's such a crucial thing to say, because if what's on the outside is deceptive, and in order to see the truth, you need to see into the heart. That leaves us quite blind, right? We can't see the truth about people. So what do we have? How can we possibly carry on? You, you use God's word, right? What's Samuel's only hope here? He can't tell who the king is. What's his only hope? To listen. To listen to what God says. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Saul, Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, the eighth one. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So he's not like, it's not, it's not, the point is not you must be ugly or you must not look, you know, you, you, uh, you must be homely, otherwise you can't be the king. But it's just the fact that the, what's the outward appearance doesn't reflect what's in the heart necessarily. Okay? Um, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, christen him, for he, this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the anointing, the chrysamine, is what delivers the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord rushes on him. Take a look at this other painting here by, I can't pronounce his name, Victor Benoit. You can't see it, so that's how it sounds. Okay. Um, I wish that I had a better, higher resolution photo here, but what, tell me what you observe about this. This is a great painting. What do you see? David is basically stripped naked. Yeah, who does he look like? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, he looks like every depiction of Jesus on the cross. Yeah, that's right. Also, about his posture, right? I mean, his head is bowed so, almost in, un, inhumanly low, right? Is that a prayer position? It looks like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Humbly receiving what's being given to him. Yeah. Yeah. Good. What? Anything else you notice? You count seven brothers? I didn't count them. I think they're... Not all the brothers are really paying attention. Yeah. They're like looking every which way like, a couple of them are going like, what is this? Yeah. That's right. Yep. What about the light? Samuel is completely illuminated. And it's un- so if, you, if whatever is lighting him were to light the rest of the room, other things would be lit, right? And then David, too, he's got light on him. Yeah. Anything else about that you notice? Okay, let's wrap, let's wrap up chapter 16 here. Um, that you have, we have to get this running start, verse 13, that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David because what happens next is, um, again, a really hard word. Now, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So this exchange, it rushes upon David and departs from Saul and... A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So, this, again, this would make a great film, right? Because you had the scene in Jesse's house, and then the scene in Saul's chamber, and these, you, they, nobody's, everybody's ignorant except for you, the viewer. You see what's going on, right? That, that what's working in the background here. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. 
And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Give me, tell me your reactions to that. This is like voodoo. How how is it like voodoo? Okay, we get the little lyre player here, and the spirit's going to be up Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. You have the spirit, excuse me, the spirit of the Lord on Yeah. So, no, it's not voodoo. It's, it's, and it's not his playing. Yeah, they think they know what's going on. Right? Right? Yeah. Now, that's such an important thing to observe. Okay, so, so God removes his spirit from Saul and sends an evil spirit to torment him. What Now, that sounds a little bit vindictive, doesn't it? But what is God doing in all of this? Trying to bring him back. Good. And he does that through David. Yeah. It's, I mean, even, even though Saul has abandoned him, abandoned God and done, betrayed the office that has been given to him, God shows him this mercy, right? If, I mean, if he could put the pieces together, if he could see that he loves David, he favors him, he knows that there's something about this young man that is able to free him from this tormenting spirit, if he could see that, if he could be grateful for it, if he could stop being so presumptuous, um, then, this is, then this is merciful to him, right? God is extending this mercy still to him. And that's, I mean, again, David gets anointed. It's not another 10 plus years before he finally becomes king. There is so much long suffering in all of this, right? Even now, as God has rejected Saul, he's showing him mercy. And it only takes a couple of chapters before Saul starts throwing spears out. That's right. <laughs> Holly. Yeah. This is maybe an effort on God's part to um, keep David alive long enough because if Saul didn't have that evil spirit tormenting, he didn't love David. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, that's good. That's a good observation. Yeah, Aaron. I was thinking about um, how you know God decides He's going to use Saul. So it's kind of like with your kids, when you're like, all right, here's what I want you to do. Walk up those stairs and go into your room, and they don't do it. And they're like, okay, the next step is I'm grabbing you, and they're riding. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's you're not doing what I said, but you're supposed to do. Yeah. But I want you to do it. And, and it's like, oh, that's so painful. That's all that it is. It didn't have to be. And, and in fact, there is, so when mercy, this is the, this is a hard thing, because it's tragic. When mercy comes and you reject it, Right, or when the words when the words come to you and you won't listen, um, it 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 heaps upon you guilt double you know twofold. Right, so it's not just that you um, sinned, but when you when you were given mercy, you again were presumptuous. You took the mercy and did what you, what you wanted with it, and now you've got that on your head as well. This is this is hardening. This is the character of hardening for those who are impenitent. This is, when, you, when you want to know what, what it means for Pharaoh to have his heart hardened, that's what it is, right? So God it doesn't stop talking to Pharaoh, right? Ten times he's telling Pharaoh, 
quit it. And Pharaoh, in rejecting that, you know, in rejecting God's word, only heaps up greater judgment on himself. So that writhing, you know, that pain is its own, uh, is its own reward, which is a terrible thing. Yeah. Krista. Um, I just was thinking uh, that David had the opportunity for several years to, to get a little bit um, the, the, um, the administration of the soil, you know, because he comes from uh, as a shepherd. You mean he had a chance to learn, to learn the ropes a bit beforehand? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, God has in mind that he will be the king. Yeah. And that he just has a little bit idea. I think that's great. I think it's really helpful to observe those really practical things. I mean, we saw, we see these really, like, again, this is what I love about the story. You get these grand sweeping movements that God is doing, and then you get these little things like Samuel says, I can't go to Bethlehem without Saul trying to kill me, right? And so God says, okay, well, a little white lie here about why you're going, why you're going to Bethlehem. Because these grand sweeping things that God is doing are always in the context of Little bits, little mo- mo- motions in history, right? So why does God got put David in the court of Saul? Yeah, maybe to teach him something about being a good king. Yeah. Gee, Kathy. So it's those little movements, though, that down the way just make a tremendous trajectory. Yeah. I was thinking, I, I don't know the specifics of it, but it's like shooting for the moon, and you just make like a itty-bitty mistake, you're like, miss the moon. Yeah. That's right. This is why, again, so we can't hit what we're aiming at, right? But God always does, which is, the, I mean, that's the most comforting thing, right? When even when we, when we're, when we're, we find ourselves writhing because God is using us in the ways that we don't want to be used. Even when we find ourselves writhing, it is um, that coming to reckon with the fact that God is not making a mistake, that this is for his purposes and his purposes are good. That's of the greatest comfort. That's the gospel, as a matter of fact. I mean, that's one way to articulate the gospel is that um, God is merciful to you and in Christ He's working everything together for your good. Um, even in these, even in these little, these little things that you feel like could be, could wind you up, you know, far from where you aim to go, God is working for your good. Kathy. Uh, in Romans, Paul talks about you know, God gave them over to their yeah. Just let us okay your way, and, and then later on says, uh, are, are you going to? on the mercy of God. Right. Kindness. And because you just don't realize that you're just building up wrath. Yeah. And rejecting. And so we see Saul do that. It just keeps building up more wrath than Yeah, it is a it is a cautionary tale, yeah. to be sure, right? And it's not again, this is such an important thing. It's not about um, whether or not he makes good choices. Like whether he succeeds in making a string of good choices. Okay, I'm going to start fresh and I'm only going to make good choices, right? It has everything to do with repentance and belief, right? So when he is confronted with his sin, what does he do? He makes excuses. Yeah, and that's where, that's where the wrath gets heaped up. Yeah. Good. We should wrap this up.
Um, I think that's all I got. Come back next week for, for uh, David and Goliath. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.